Welcome to So You Went to School for Singing, the podcast. I am your host, Andre Peel, and thank you so much for joining the conversation. Each episode, a guest and I talk about all things singing, the career, education, and so much more. All right, let's get started. Today I have Stephanie Holly. Or else, as I knew her, Stephanie McAllister back in the day, but now she's all married and grown up. Stephanie Holly, how are you today? (laughs) I'm doing great. Better now that I see you. Oh my gosh. And we were just talking about it. But like I said, I don't think we've seen each other since 2012. It's almost been a decade. Like we (sighs) have, you know, gone through instant messaging and, you know, just said, hey, how you doing? Did all that. But we have never done this. Yes, and I guess that's the power and the positive power of social media. So you can feel, you might not talk to someone, but you can at least kind of know that their life is going, that they're alive and that they're thriving and da 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 da. So, anyways, so <laughs> I'm super excited to jump into this and hear all the things that you've done because I've only, like I said, through social media, I've seen just like little parts. And so I'm excited to know. So, but like I start everyone I want to know your opera origin story so everything Mm -hmm. that led you up into school of the arts I guess for your undergrad so how you got into it any and all feel free (laughs) well I think starting off classical music wasn't my taste because growing up classical music wasn't in my household you know I was more of gospel R&B jazz you know everything that kind of personifies blackness. Yes. <laughs> um, that was my upbringing um, with a little sprinkle here and now, every now and then of like alternative or rock that I also liked myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember being in high school and this is before I went to my art school um, um, while I was a high school student. And I auditioned for these two choirs or two ensembles. One was a jazz ensemble. The other was Classical was magicals. They call themselves magicals, and we know what magicals are. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I auditioned, and they wanted me in both. And supposedly, my middle school choral teacher told me that they had stayed in that room till nine o'clock debating about where they want to put me. And I ended up in magicals. Was I happy? Not a hundred percent. But I was like, okay, we'll do this. Um, And I did it to the best of my ability with, you know, the resources and transportation that I had available to me. Um, I appreciated it to a certain extent, but we all know young classical artists can sometimes be a little snooty. And so I felt that with my um, peers that they were just like, just a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't my taste. Um, But then I really wanted to get into to, to music because I just felt like it was a huge part of my life. And um, I remember one day watching, if you remember, um, the series Driven. Remember that on VH1? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And they were doing Outcast. I always tell this story, but Outcast, in their story, they tell about how they went to an art school. And I was just like, there's such thing as an art school. And I like, my mind just blew up. And I was like, in. I think my freshman year of high school, because I was already getting tired of magicals. And um, (laughs) so I called my uncle, who was a teacher, and I was like, 
is there an art school here in Connecticut? I really want to go to an art school. And he was, I was like, if I can't get into one here, I'm going to go to one in Atlanta. And he was like, well, you're 16 years old. So <laughs> <laughs> don't think you want to be that far away from your mother. Let's figure out another option. And um, he found two schools and then I um, auditioned for one of them and I got in. And um, that was an experience. I loved, love, love, and I'll shout them out. Greater Harvard Academy of the Arts. They were a great school. I uh, met my best friends there and really started to find my voice, started to find who I was. And that's also where I met my voice teacher, Ms. Pratnicki, uh, for School of the Arts, because she came to a, a workshop we had there for young singers. And she heard me sing because I sang for her master class. And then after it, you know, um, she said, you should audition. And I was like, okay. And I just went ahead and auditioned. I mean, my voice teacher in the art school, Sarah Hirsch, or ah, her last name is not Hirsch anymore. Uh, <laughs> she was the one who got me into classical music. She just mm -hmm. kind of took me under her wing and she, you know, she just invested and poured into me and I will never forget that. And I felt like getting into classical music was sort of like an ode to her to say like, thank you. And, um, it was good, you know, it was good doing that for a while, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, doing things out of devotion as a, a sense of gratitude to other people. But when I got into college, I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't yeah. do that anymore. I think you can understand where I'm yes. going, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. where I'm going with this because, you know, um, that it, it all kind of changed. I don't, I don't know if you want me to kind of just flow into my experience at UNCSA because that's where I'm leading up to now. Yes, I want to go back because something, I think when I zoom out of all these conversations that I'm having, um, one thing that has been consistent with most people is that they went, a lot of people went to an art school. And I, and me growing up, finding School of the Arts in the high school program, I thought it was very rare. Turns out, Lots of states, lots of places have them. Yeah. But, and this is no shade to my experience at the School of the Arts high school program, but it, from hearing other, people com other people's conversations and stories, your programs were way more diverse than mine was at School of the Arts mm -hmm. for high school. Mm -hmm. Like we had voice lessons and we sang in the choir cantata, but other than that, there weren't many singing classes, singing experiences, performing opportunities, but it seems from what I remember from your story um, and other things that I remember Stevie talking about, it's just like you guys performed a lot and very we did. diverse types of music. So what was that like? And was that a lot of pressure when you were young or is it that thing that I think we find as we get older that we were so naive that we didn't know how hard things were because it was just like, okay, I'll do it. Ding. <laughs> I think that's it. Um, I think we were just really naive. And it also for me, for feeling like an outcast at my regular high school, this just felt so good. Like it felt like this was my place. So I was all about it. Um, I loved being introduced to music theater and jazz and classical all in one setting and being able to sing all of those to explore my voice and all of those. It just it was amazing. It, it really was. And um, still having the opportunity to kind of dive deep into each genre mm -hmm. um, while you're there. I think it just made me internally appreciate what was already there, which I appreciate diversity. And I appreciated the fact that they embraced diversity there in that way, you mm -hmm. know, as far as us not being, you know, 
put into one category of singing, although there was still, you know, the, the sort of um, the idea that singers, you know, singers, musicians, you know, kind of separating yes. us. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I roll. And it was just sort of annoying in that sense. But, you know, it was still a community of artists and we all still got along. I mean, it wasn't just music. There was drama, there was visual arts, there was dance. There was so much, there were so many artists there and we all felt like we were probably outcast in our high school and to come here is where we finally felt like we weren't. Ah, beautiful. And I could tell stories about our experience at School of the Arts, but I don't want it to mess up your timeline of what you want to share. So I'll wait until you're done. And then I'll tell you my favorite uh, Stephanie moments at school. So go for it. Your experience at coming all the way down to North Carolina. North Kakalaki. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, was, I guess, raised in the North. And, but we had a lot of family. Mm-hmm. No, but it was still foreign, the idea of being in the South and Southern hospitality and the culture of the South. Like it was just kind of all something I was very new to. Um, coming to you in CSA, um, I think for any student, it's just eye-opening the types of people you'll run into, people with different beliefs. And I look back at it now and I think to myself, I was like, man, I was so young. I was so young and I did not know myself. I did not know myself. I was still, I was at the very beginning of my journey of getting to know myself because I was taken away from my family. Not taken, but I I have moved away from my family, you know, and now I stand alone and representing myself now, not so, not so much representing my family. I represent Mm -hmm. myself as an individual. And that, that's probably the hardest part about college. (laughs) And especially um, being being in the artist realm, I had to at some point separate myself from the idea that Stephanie, the artist, I am Stephanie first, first and foremost, um, because saying that I am first a singer or first a musician just kind of put this unnecessary pressure on me. And it, it to a person who's already myself at that time was dealing with low self-esteem it put me in dark places when things didn't go the way that I, I had imagined them to go or if they didn't go perfect. Yes. Yeah. So it, I, and it wasn't until I graduated that I finally was like, okay, this separation needs to kind of happen and figure out who Stephanie is because as a result of being at UNCSA, you know, it, it was a great, it was an overall pretty great experience. Um, now what I will say is that I appreciate all who helped me there, but I have to say it was a struggle for me as a black musician. It was a struggle. Um, and, and I appreciated Jamisa's perspective because um, everybody's made up differently. Mm-hmm. And so Jamisa was aware of what she came in, in encounter with, but I wasn't at the time, you know, I, the microaggressions, defining all of that and what racism looked like, I did not, I was not fully educated and fully aware of what that looked like because I had just came from this wonderful place that sort of accepted me for who I am and then put me in a box, you know, to, to say, this is who you are. Um, 
so it was just kind of it, that that probably was the one thing that kind of rocked my world um because i didn't realize that my colleagues were coming from such different backgrounds you know some of them had music for like seven years or since they were like six or yes. five yes and i'm coming in with only two years under my belt mm -hmm. And I still had to learn everything at their level. I had to learn oral skills and theory and keyboard at their level. But the, it was just frustrating in a sense. And because I felt like an imposter, we all know about imposter syndrome, I felt like a, an imposter in a sense. I felt like I had to, you know, keep up with them, quote unquote, keep up with them. Just say like, okay, I, I don't have to study as much. I, I, you know, what they study is, is just good enough because yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. I know you can relate. Yes. This is just, I don't have to study as much, you know, we're good. Or, um, I don't have to practice as much because I mean, they don't have to practice as much. So, you know, we're, you know, I should be on their level. This is, this is what it looks like. Right. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> this is not what it looks like. It's a little different. And that was kind of the rude awakening for me in my sophomore year. Um, my freshman year, I tried to go with the flow, and it was not my flow at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my sophomore year, where there was that separation because I had failed um, one of my core classes and had to take all three of them over again in my sophomore year, so there was that separation from my colleagues that there wasn't this expectation that I had to be at their level. I'm like, okay, now I'm taking it at my own pace. You know, that was kind of the awakening then that yeah. I can operate um, as my own learner being black, you know, there were some uh, social <laughs> encounters that I had that kind of also made it a little uneasy sometimes. I yes. uh, still remember freshman year sitting at a table um, in the cafeteria and one of our colleagues, you know, um, said to me a conversation in front of another colleague, uh, I had said something and I said specific. And he was just like, oh, I thought you people say Pacific. And I was just like, what? Oh, I, 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 I <laughs> did not know this story, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And, you know, um, that kind of hit hard for me. Like, what we don't understand about microaggressions is that they're kind of little jabs, but they come with sometimes for a lot of people, a lot of damage. Um, and so that just added, again, unnecessary pressure for me to make sure that I didn't fail, to make sure that I could keep up with them. And to make sure that at any point, I just didn't make myself look like an imposter, that I belonged here. You know, it didn't matter how many times my voice teacher, Ms. Pratnicki, would tell me you belong here. I didn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that way. And I appreciate, I think about this time, looking back, I appreciate everyone who tried to make me feel like I belonged there. Mm -hmm. Prime example, uh, Maestro Albritton. Um, he when we had that very uh, challenging choral piece our senior year, remember? <laughs> by Professor uh, Kenneth Frizzell? Yes, yeah. yes. Who is my <laughs> next door neighbor, by the way? Right now, he lives literally across <laughs> the street from me. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, but we, remember we did that piece and I had a solo in there. And there's just little moments, you know, that you don't realize that uh, the staff is really paying attention to you. Um, and so when I had my coaching with Ms., uh, Maestro Albrin, he said okay so this is going to change you remember it just like change meter from like two bars like, yes. in, in your solo even though your solo could be like 10 yes. so <laughs> you go through like four or five meters um and so he was like 
it's going to change. And I was like, yeah, I know that's okay. And then he went, you know, your freshman year, you wouldn't have thought that was okay. And he just kind of smiled saying like, I just want you to, to, to notice that. And it just meant something to me that he was even paying attention or he acknowledged that. And I think a part of it was because we were also in conducting class with him. Yeah. And um, he was kind of seeing more of Stephanie too in, in that scenario because we haven't had much personal professional interaction at that point. So now he was seeing, you know, what I had been working up to my senior year at that point. And so I appreciated him. And I also think about uh, Dr. Winkleman. Dr. Barris, all people who really wanted to show me that I belong there. And I, to this day, am so grateful for them um, because their actions, not just their words, but their actions that they put into helping me believe that, you know, just means so much and helped me to not leave UNCSA with a, a bad taste in my mouth just because of minimal, you know, distasteful experiences. Yes. Do you feel that, you know, we talk about visibility and the importance of that and access and the access that we have to classical music or education, musical education before coming to school? Um, I guess those are two different questions. So I ask one at a time. Do you feel <laughs> that um, had there been more diversity maybe in faculty maybe more diversity in student population that your experience would have been better that you would have had more people that you felt like you could relate to that could have made things easier or more comfortable for you uh i'll say strongly with faculty um because most of african-american faculty i saw in like administrative positions they were not professors um teaching the arts um, at least in the voice department. Mm -hmm. um, so that could have definitely um, helped alongside to just kind of share some insight with me with the things that I was struggling with. Um, that that would have been so helpful. And I know I wasn't the only one. Yeah. We, you and I, <laughs> I feel like we made it out of UNCSA by the grace of God because we know people who look just like us didn't make it. How many times did we see somebody drop out? Yes. And I, I case in point, if I, when I, because it's a matter of time, when I'm running a school, I would always, always say that what fuels me is the fact, and you know what three people I'm talking about, we had three Black people in one class mm -hmm. and all three of them dropped out or got kicked out or whatever at the same time. Mm -hmm. And looking back at it now versus then like now i'm like that should have been a red flag that should have never happened and the mm -hmm. fact that three black people in an already small music program especially a voice program all dropped at the same time mm -hmm. i think it should have been a red flag people should have said this shouldn't have happened how right. did this happen what does this mean otherwise you're uh, just giving us a message and saying that we're so disposable right Yes, because it seemed like, oh, well, you know, they got into struggles and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they're just not for everyone. And it's just like, and it's just kind of like a Pontius Pilate just wiping the hands. And they're like, okay, and next. Bruh, yes. And, and just the fact that it was three people at one time, especially because all three of those people. And not just in one department. Wise, 
Yes, exactly. And and the fact that those three people had so much talent, like mm-hmm. extraordinary talent, like the gift given to them and how their their environment wasn't conducive. Is that the word? Conducive to positive growth. Um, and I do or think- Or accommodating. Yeah. And- and so that's always my like driving force of education because that is when you don't have access to diversity and you don't have people who look like you and you don't have a space where you feel like you can be seen or heard, that's when people fall by the wayside. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, just straight up, school's too expensive to just let people to, to fall by the wayside. Uh, hello? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and, I, and I, I think it's a part of aging, but... <laughs> Like you realize you old how much man. I well, it's like money. <laughs> it is from a money perspective. Like if you don't make it, so say you drop out or you get kicked out after your sophomore year, you that's a lot of tuition even then up to that point that you've just now of money. That's an amount of money that you threw away. I mean, I guess you got some good experiences, but you just threw away. That's money that you that should be accounted for. And someone should go, hey, mm-hmm. how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And so I do hope, in general, all schools for all diversities, because it's not just black people, but it's all people who minorities who feel that they're right. not seen. That schools really know that a lack of diversity can really mess with their ability to grow. Which and is that- cultural cultural humility to understand that your reality is not everyone's reality. It, it just really bothers me <laughs> so much that, you know, it's not just one group of white people, white people. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing at myself because I meant to say one group of people, but really, Stephanie, you just meant to say white people. Um, it's not just white people um, who have the, the issue, but it can't be us as humans sometimes that we are apathetic towards other people with different realities. But in speaking terms of, of the privileged, you know, if you are privileged, you need to be culturally humble to understand that your life is not the same as someone else's. That would then help you to open your eyes to see how you can be an ally, how you can be supportive and not a savior in a sense to really appreciate their culture and then also assist them on this journey uh it's just so frustrating i know it actually it was it was it wasn't until you mentioned like by the grace of god us us making it through (laughs) that my brain started to tally all the black people in the voice (laughs) department that i know that did not make it through in the small time we were there we were only there for four well five for me but four years Uh, four and a half four and a half okay true i was counting high school and it's like (laughs) in that small period of time that many people of black people didn't make it and i don't know if in the moment we weren't able to see it as deeply because we were just trying to make it through for real and and you were trying to survive flies around you Mm mm-hmm but like now just you bringing that back, I'm just like, oh my gosh, so many <laughs> fell by the So wayside. many, so many, and with so much potential. Um, and you know, I wanna go into the experience uh, that really, <laughs> you know, kind of confronted my fears. Um, mm-hmm. The story I don't think I've really shared with anyone um, who wasn't there or witnessing it, but you probably was witnessing it some, somewhat. 
but I was supposed to graduate my senior year 2011. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, Stephanie had already been, had already failed at least two times before reaching this point. Why not fail a third time? And <laughs> it's just, this is just the beauty of the journey. Um, it was kind of like God saying like, yeah, you're failing a couple of times. It doesn't mean your journey is ending. I mean, yeah. it's just a part of it. And that, that I remember that day, uh, I'm laughing now because it was so dramatic, but it, you know, it paid off in a sense. That's why I said four and a half years because yes. I didn't really share that, but, um, it was the day I was checking out some residents at Bailey Street Apartments. You remember those raggedy apartments? Yes. They just knocked <laughs> them down. They're building new ones. No. Yes. Praise the Lord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember checking out some residents and then I get a phone call, phone call from Dr. Winkleman. And he tells me, Stephanie, um, I just got your grade in from Dr. Dodd's class and you did not pass. You failed. So you will not be able to walk across the stage. Oh, I tell you, I was like, wait, what, 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 what? I was just like incoherent. And I just hung up the phone and I started running up to Watson Hall. And I went into his office. <laughs> you know, I was just, you know, you just completely void of the fact of who's around. You're just like, uh-uh, this cannot be. Yes. I cannot fail. This will prove them right. I can't do this. And mm. I went into his office and he was just explaining to me, he was like, well, you didn't do this assignment and you handed in your paper really late. And then the paper wasn't that good. So, and he was just, and I was just hearing him, but you know, after a while, just like the yes. sound kind of drowns out. It's like, wah, 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 wah. and I'm yeah. like, I dazed out. Cause I was just like, I can't believe this happened to me. And then I could hear him say, Stephanie, Stephanie. And I was like, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I walked out of his office and then I just fell on the steps of Watson Hall and I started bawling. And then <laughs> ironically, Dr. Dodds was walking by <laughs> and he was just like saying like, oh, hey, Stephanie. But he saw me like crying. So his face was like, from, what do like, you oh, mean? Hey. Oh, hey, Stephanie. What? <laughs> <laughs> he kind of went like, oh, like his face changed just a little bit. Um, yeah, I just found out. But um, it was devastating. It was a really devastating moment to find out something I had been working towards wasn't happening in the time that I thought it was going to be. It happened. Eventually, I graduated, but I, I embarrassingly did not graduate with my group of people. And I remember that feeling I had of devastation and then also a feeling of peace. Um, it was really weird, but I had a feeling of peace because I knew that I was going, getting ready to go to Temple University, you know, because it was an expectation of everyone around me to go to grad school for singing. But I had not done the inner work and I did not acknowledge what I wanted to do. I was just going with everybody else's flow. Although there had been hurdles of identifying that, this was probably the biggest one that Stephanie you going to grad school for singing is not it. And I felt like it was just a stop, a big stop to say, this is not the route that you're supposed to go. So I remember that feeling. It was hard afterwards to take that one class because one, I wasn't considered a student anymore. I was just taking that class and that class cost $1,500. So yeah, me, uh, <laughs> I just have $1,500 sitting. I had to fundraise half of it, and then the other half was loaned to me. 
um, by a lovely couple. And through blood, sweat and tears and working three other jobs, I was able to finally finish that class. So, mm-hmm. yes, I walked across the stage with a class that I did not intend to walk across stage with because I was proud of the fact that I actually finished. It did not happen in time, did not happen the way I wanted to, but it happened. And now, what, eight years later, I'm doing just fine. Yes. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. <laughs> yes, thriving. Um, and sometimes, and I don't know if it's just the way that we um, process these things, I think sometimes those stops are, is the way to know that like, hey, you had an expectation for how life was supposed to go mm-hmm. and you thought that you were in control guess what? <laughs> You're not. <Nope. laughs> and, uh, um, and just, I think those moments can be so good because if you didn't learn it, then who mm-hmm. knows what other things you would have had to go through to learn it later. Yeah. Oh, but in the moment, cause I remember, and I, I, and I don't even think again, it's like you, you're running full speed for the finish line. Finish line, and yeah. And we're all here together. And I remember, because this was like literally the <laughs> day before graduation, two days before mm-hmm. graduation. Mm-hmm. And I heard what happened. And I remember feeling sad. But I also remember, got to keep running, got to keep running. Right, And so right. you're in this race. And I don't think it's supposed to be this way. No, we're way. supposed to be running together. And... And and I do think sometimes just through stresses mm-hmm. that you you sometimes get selfish. And I know you have to work work on yourself and you have to be in your zone. But I do think sometimes the environment can make you feel like you can't be empathetic to other people because you have to just do you. And well, I feel and like de- that- developmentally. Like we are just still very, we have a very egotistical world in our early twenties. It's just really, it's centered around us. So yeah. it'd be amazing if somebody could show that, that amount of empathy where they're just like, no, this shouldn't happen and start charging our faculty. I mean, that, that really says something. Um, if it is, you know, off of your own volition and conviction and not, you know, for some other reason, I want to say this though, Dr. Dodds is not a bad person for failing me. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, he's not a bad person for failing me. He was in his right. And we had a conversation, actually, um, after all of this had happened. You know, we had the conversation about when he had to, because he just felt like my work wasn't exemplary of who I am. And so he couldn't pass me. And I respected him for that um, because it helped me (laughs) to, to, to know, okay, it helped me to learn so many things about myself. Let me just say that. So many things. That one, one moment helped me to learn so many things. And it was just one of many hurdles. But, I, but I'm grateful for it. him. Yeah. And at least oh. you learned it. Because some people just choose to let life hit them and then they victimize them. Yes, victim. Lord. Come on. Oh, my gosh. Why did this happen to me? Yes, and stay and to- there. And stay there. And you know what? And maybe you, you, you get a beat. Maybe you get a beat of being like, why is this happening to me? But then you have to keep it moving. And mm-hmm. so good for you for keeping it moving because you didn't have to. It um, was so hard. I just knew I wanted a better life. And you know that money we were talking about, how, how much you pay for college? That is a good motivator right there. 
because it was like, ain't no way this money about to go in vain. <laughs> there, there's going to be some fruit that comes out of this labor. It's yes. just, it's just not going to go in vain. No way. Mm-mm. So, okay. So things that I know. So you, you stayed around and you took your class. And then I remember vaguely, this was so long ago, there was a bank job. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and then I remember, I don't know the order of this. I remember <laughs> Stephanie's engaged, getting married. Then I remember these, so it's literally just like little shot flashes. And then like school for music therapy, St. Louis. <laughs> so connect those dots for me. What is the timeline? For gladly, <laughs> gladly. So this is what happened. Stephanie at one point was working three jobs. I think around the time we were neighbors and I was subletting that apartment behind the house. Remember that oh, for that yeah. one summer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was working about three jobs and then I moved into my own apartment with a friend of mine. And of course, three jobs is really hard. And I don't know where I got the idea that thinking I could work three jobs that I would make enough money, but really it wasn't, um, was going to be enough. And eventually what happened is that one of my jobs, my back gave out and I had to go to the ER and I couldn't like move. <laughs> and um, I was just so tired. I was run down. There were days that I worked and didn't eat because I was going from one job to the next. You know, I've been pretty much on my feet all day. And after when I had to kind of just be home for a week, you know, it was really time to just sit and just think like, okay, am I really like doing what I need to do? You know, or am I just, or am I just afraid? And fear was just a big part of my life. At that time, I responded out of fear because it was fear of what people might think, fear of what somebody might say, fear of what I may look like. And so I realized, I was like, you know what? I just, also the fear of if I'm going to make it, I was like, okay, I'm only going down to two jobs. You know, I was actually having a conversation with somebody this morning, a group of people, and the idea of wellness, you know, taking care of yourself, it happens to be, you know, sort of a radical movement when you kind of try to implement that. And it was radical for me in that time to say, I need to take care of myself just a little bit. I know I'm struggling, but I need to take care of myself because this can't happen. So then I went down to two jobs and then eventually I was like two jobs for the birds. I need one job. (laughs) And then I went down to one job and that's when I got the job at a legacy federal credit union. And then I was, even though I still wasn't full-time there, I was part-time there. And eventually I became full-time. And then even working at a legacy, I was still like, this is for the birds. This is not for (laughs) Stephanie. This is not for Stephanie. And I had a talk with my pastors about what I was thinking or what I believe that God was putting on my heart. And it was the idea of like, I think music therapy might be it. And I remember just kind of bawling because it was it really, I had just encapsulated, you know, the dream with fear because it was like, ain't no way I can do this. I don't think mm-hmm. I can do this because one of the most, um, I guess, intimidating things was that in order for you to be a music therapist, you have to learn how to play guitar and piano. And I was like, I've already struggled with piano Ain't no point in trying to pick up a guitar. Like, (laughs) I was just like, uh, it was just a struggle for me to get to that point. And I remember just being like, okay, God, if you really want me to go into music therapy, just send me a sign. And I remember having a conversation with a friend, um, 
I think we, we, we know him. I just can't remember his name at the moment. And we were sitting at the pickle jar <laughs> and I told him like, oh, I want to get into music therapy, but I just need a guitar. And he was like, I have a guitar and you can have it for free. If you could just, you know, learn to play and sing a song for me one day. And I was like, you're serious. Aww. And he was like, yes. And it was this beautiful Yamaha guitar that I still have to this day. It is my heart. Um, and that was kind of like my sign, like, okay, it kind of gave me the push to go ahead and start looking into it and applying and believing that I can achieve such things. And so even though, it, and this is what it goes back to, like, even though I had failed so many times, the fear of failure was still there. Like, girl, yes. you failed. You epically failed like three times. You should get it by now that failure ain't gonna stop you. Uh, but I still let it get to me. <laughs> so when I finally accepted that I was going to go to school for or grad school for music therapy, um, I started applying. I had to go through the whole list of accredited schools with a master's program, especially equivalency program, because I have a bachelor's in music, but not music therapy. So I had to take some music therapy undergrad and then my grad courses in music therapy. And so at first I wanted to go to App State just to stay in North Carolina. Um, App State was like, no. And then I was like, okay, all right, <laughs> back to the drawing board. And then I just, I remember just going down a list of qualifications and requirements for each school and their program. And then there was three left on my list. And Maryville was one of them. And I was like, who's Maryville? Um, I was really confused. I was like, I don't know mm -hmm. about this school. I gave them a call and they were just so proactive and so kind and the application was free. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll apply. Um, so I went ahead and applied and I got in and I was like, wow, Stephanie is really about to go to St. Louis. I've been <laughs> a Northeasterner and I've been in the South. I've been in the East all my life and now about to go and live in the Midwest. What? Yeah. So I took my 97 Volvo and a thousand dollars to my name and drove to St. Louis. Yes. Um, this is a question that I like asking. How how did you do that from a like mental perspective? Because that's a lot. The majority of people around an everyday person would not have dis would not have chosen to take that risk. Mm -hmm. They would have made excuses. I need to save more money. I need to do this. I need to I, X Y Z. Like you said, they would have been like, "Oh, I failed X amount of times. I can't do it again." So what over road that sense of mentality for you to make you well to let you do that i would say it first started with how i did not like my job <laughs> and i just couldn't imagine my life being like this mm -hmm. i just had to think like this needs to be better and so that was my driving motivation behind it and because i really love the idea of music therapy um i don't think we ever had that conversation while we were my undergrad but being a resident assistant <laughs> And then also being in music, I kind of loved the the relationship of the two. I loved being able to help people. Oh, you know this story about Stephanie wanting to help people. It's probably the reason why she failed because I tried to do everything. It'd be Oprah Winfrey. And we know that's not what I'm supposed to do right now. <laughs> but wait, but I think uh, it's very true. I feel like I suffered a lot of that same mentality. But I think on some level, it wasn't that that giving spirit was wrong or misplaced it was just oh, no. trying to find the balance of how to to lean on that but also keep in perspective everything else 
right. <laughs> I think I remember my friend Wesley telling me, like, you came to School of the Arts to learn music, not to learn how to be student body vice president. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's true. That's the, the, my degree is not in student body vice president. So yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it was just, yeah, I had to prioritize and put things into perspective. Um, but what also brought me to that place of just like go was that I just, like I said, I really loved music therapy. I love that idea of being able to help people with music because for me, the idea of focusing on myself, you know, for a majority of the day and my craft and not really interacting with people through music, but having just moments, you know, when we do, you know, share our gift with people. And um, that to me just didn't seem like enough. It wasn't enough mm -hmm. for me. And I respect you and everyone who does it because it is a craft to master. It, is, it just takes so, it, it takes so much um, work and time for anything that we're passionate about. And I just felt that music therapy was my calling. Mm -hmm. So that was my drive behind it. I think when you know this is what you're supposed to be doing, you know, or you just believe in your heart, this is where you're supposed to be going. That's where I, that's, that's what drove me. And then it was a, a, probably a lot of divine intervention going on at that time because yes. I was, because there were people coming in and supporting me and, you know, giving me money. And I was just like, Oh, thanks. Like that thousand dollars didn't just ha happen to be there. Let me tell you, Stephanie was broke. She was brokeity broke. And so the money that people were kind of investing was kind of like also encouragement to say like, you, you got this, you can do this. And it was like, okay, all right, I'm going to go ahead. And it was still hard getting there. Like I remember getting there and I was staying on their campus. They don't have graduate housing. Uh, it was annoying. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so I stayed in one of their campus apartments and arriving there, like the empathy from people when they saw that I was this girl in this Volvo, you know, with and I had just left everyone I loved and I just had my car and this money to my name they just I didn't even have to say all of that they came to my assistance you know and it just like it just gave me the little bit of motivation that I needed okay like there were just moments like that mm -hmm. even with my professors even with certain colleagues or even with mentors in my area who were just like you just a little bit of encouragement to keep you going just to keep you going and it really helped me get to the finish line, even though there were still, there were still those doubts while pursuing my master's because there's no other woman in my, in my family who's ever even gotten a bachelor's, you know, let alone a match, a master's. It was, it was really challenging. And I still ran into, you know, some <laughs> distasteful situation sensitive or just unaware, you know, um, or just feeling like I'm, I, well, and I not feeling like I was pretty much the only black person, I think in my graduating class and it's a small group of people. So it was just like, oh, this is frustrating. Um, <laughs> again, here we go. Um, but I made a very good friend there and she helped me to be a little bit more culturally sensitive to as well. Just not, not to just one, but to all. And, um, because she was just trying to break barriers. I mean, she saw me that first day and I was mean mugging because I was just feeling all types of emotions. Yes. I didn't, I was just like, I'm tired. I'm hot. And <laughs> I'm starting a new life and I'm scared. <laughs> and she just came, she, her little self just came and sat up beside me 
I was like, hi, my name's Clarissa. And I was just like, hi. It's just like, I didn't mean to be, you know, that person, but I was just so, I was not, like I said, I wasn't feeling it. There were many reasons, but because of her, you know, persistence, we, Mm -hmm. we have a very close relationship to this day. And those are the kind of relationships that are important to me to help me to feel like I'm not alone. Um, But yes, that was, I think I gave you more than enough about answering your question. (laughs) No, I, um, you, you made a good point about, you know, being the first to get a master's degree. And I don't think that's specifically a black situation. I think that's for different cultures and different levels of everyone being the first. And I don't think we have enough, maybe education has enough empathy for that and what that means. When you're the first, that means you don't have anybody that you can call and be like, oh, I'm going through this and then being like, oh yeah, I remember when I was doing drugs. Yes, go ahead, list it off, go ahead. There's no one to call for that. There's Mm -hmm. no one to know what that money is because that's more money that you have to pay for. And it's not just tuition, it's everything you need to survive. (laughs) Yes, and then you have on top of that, no one that can relate to you, but also sometimes you have the people who don't understand and out of their own fear, they project on you they're like oh that's a lot do you feel like you need to will, will there be money in that and th- and when you have when you come from a family I think I don't know because I don't know what people what everybody might be has more people have master's degrees they're like oh yes I understood I understand mm-hmm. it is a big investment but I'll tell you mm-hmm. that like, but when you don't have someone who's done it who's been on the other side mm-hmm. to to be like it's okay you can yeah. do this it's going to mm-hmm. be hard you even mentally it is hard to walk wake up and do those classes and do it because you're just shooting in the dark honestly because you're like i don't know this path and (laughs) you have no idea when you take your next step are you gonna fall off are you gonna be fine and i don't think i i don't think we invest enough in people's story Mm -hmm. because when you have know someone's story, yes, it's not maybe the work. You're not doing the work. It's like, we're here to do work. No, but like to, you have to meet your students where they are. Right. Not just like talent on the talent level or uh, uh, mental level, but just up a cultural level, a personal level. Because mm-hmm. if you know that this student is doing everything for the first time. Yes. Like you have to know that that's different. They can be as mm-hmm. talented as anybody else, but there's going to always be something else that they have to be working through that every, they're going to second guess things because it's just new and there's, and there's no one else. There's no frame of reference. And I have to say being, being a master's graduate now, I feel very fortunate to have mentees who are about to go into the same field that I, that I'm, I just studied and I'm able to give them a heads up like, Hey girl, you're going to doubt yourself sometimes, you know, but this is how you navigate through it. You know, it's just, it, it makes me feel good that it doesn't have to be just within my family, but there are people out here, you know, trying to help us, you know, understand what it is to be a learner. What it is to, to, to educate yourself and, and be a product of what you're learning, you know, not just take it as, Oh, I'm taking a test you know, and this is just a part of my education. No, this is material that you have to learn in order for you to be what you're trying to be. You know, I took it that seriously going into my, my master's. 
I was just thinking like, I want to be a product of what I am learning. I don't want to just feel like I'm just looking at a piece of paper or I'm just reading another book, but I want to take it all in so that I can be the best version of a music therapist in Stephanie's world. Um, and I think that mindset really helped me to stay confident. And actually the experience was quite different from UNCSA versus my master's because I was a little bit more mature. I was also a little bit more educated, a little bit more aware. And I knew what this is what I was supposed to be doing as opposed to my undergrad. I was like, eh, I'm not sure. Um, but my master's, I was like, no, no, no. Cause I'm not wasting more money for me to <laughs> yes. figure out like if I'm supposed to be doing this, I know I'm supposed to be doing this. So there were opportunities that I thrived in. There were still some opportunities where I like, meh, you know, kind of passed, but there were opportunities that I thrived and people were able to see my professors and, uh, and people around me were able to see like, Stephanie, really like, this is you, this is what you're supposed to be doing. I.e., this is why I'm still doing it. Um, because I put my all understanding, this is what I wanted to do and didn't let, you know, my doubts and my fears or microaggressions get in my way. It was, it was like, this is what I have to do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to combat those. Um, and it's a daily practice. That's one thing I want to say on this journey to finding who I am. It is a daily practice. It is not a momentary thing where all of a sudden you have a really great moment and that's defining for you. It is the daily intentional choices you make to, to do the inner work on yourself that really eventually cultivate the person you want to be. It's, it's not that one-time thing. And that's, a, that's what I really had to learn for myself. Like even with my failures or with my successes, those do not truly define. They are just a product of some of my labor or a product of the lack of, but they are not my defining you know, moments. So I want to hop in a little bit of the nitty gritty of the education. So what, uh, what did you learn? Okay. I'll ask all the questions. What did you learn <laughs> in music therapy that was specific to music therapy? Just curious. Um, and what skills did you learn from music therapy that you think could have been taught, should have been taught to you, or you would have liked learning in undergrad for singing? Mm, um, um, so as far as what music therapy, so I'll talk about what music therapy taught me in general. Mm -hmm. um, music therapy is just very eye-opening and how music has a great impact on us. Um, not in just the senses we see it, um, but there are many things, there are many scientific elements to music that can be a part of our healing journey and not just psychologically, but physiologically. When we're talking about <clears throat> understanding how the brain works and me, it was really eye-opening to see the, uh, how the brain works in regards to emotions. Uh, one thing I think we tend to separate is like emotions they can't be a part of, you know, what's going on up here, but that's not necessarily true. That's why we have a left and a right brain. You know, the left yeah. brain is more logical. The right brain is, it's where we feel. It's a part of body movement, all that jazz. And that was really eye-opening for me and kind of affirming for, for me as well to understand that I'm just not the sensitive person 
but I'm sensitive to other people's needs as well as my own. Um, and it was just eye-opening for me on a personal standpoint. Um, but <laughs> it, it also is sort of eye-opening to me how healthcare um, and wellness, we were talking about this mm-hmm. earlier, it's just sort of, it's, it hasn't been a resource for the African-American community as much or for those who are impoverished when it should be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of music therapists are very passionate about helping those who are underserved, a lot of them. And um, it's, it's heartwarming to see how considerate and empath- empathetic they can be about what they do as a profession to help, you know, mankind. Um, what I wish I would have known about music therapy um, when I was in my undergrad I think with the knowledge that I know now, I probably would just wouldn't have wasted my time trying to apply for Temple University <laughs> to go there for grad school and feel like this is this is where I I had to be. But also, I would have taken you know um, I would have taken probably my oral skills class a little a little more seriously, even though I felt like I did at that time. But uh, right now, you know, as a musician. I am doing a lot of listening. <laughs> I do yeah. a lot of listening. You know, when I'm in a session or I'm trying to learn a song, there are certain songs that there's no music written for. So there's no way I can really learn about, I can learn that song, you know, except by ear. And so I just wish I challenged myself more a little bit with that, in a sense, to just kind of develop my ear a little bit more. And it has developed over time. It's gotten a little better. But in a in a popular sense, it was it it's taking it's taking a little bit more time um, to really make a distinction when I'm trying to listen to a song and just pick out its chords. You know, I think I could have just you know taken that a little bit more seriously to help myself out. Yes. Um, so, but one more education question. So, were there things that you learned? music there are there are there components of music therapy that translate directly to vocal performance all of it yes <laughs> all yes. of it <laughs> and and are there <laughs> okay so i guess what musical music therapy maybe tools mm-hmm. would you give to someone in undergrad for voice that would help them on their voice journey so um it's more about vocal health when it mm-hmm. comes to um, being a music therapist because we use our voice so much um, or we have the potential to use our voice so much. And I think I was at an advantage of going to a school for and, and getting my undergrad in singing because I understand what vocal health looks like. I understand that if I'm having certain issues, I could just go to an ET or I understand there are certain remedies I could use at home to help my voice. I feel that with everything a music therapist has to learn, it is challenging for them to learn that one thing, vocal health. Our bodies, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of similar in a sense where a, a classical singer, your body is your instrument. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with a music therapist. Your body is your instrument and your hands are also your instrument in playing the guitar. So I think wellness could be a thing that I think has kind of transferred over from my undergrad into my master's um, understanding what it what it means to take care of my voice you know vocal silence like just being quiet because you may have to 
you may have to go from one session to the other and sing for this patient. And that could be for like an hour. You know, there are music therapists who are doing really sophisticated work in hospitals where they're, you know, um, using music to help someone get through a surgery, you know, or to help. So um, we were just learning about this yesterday. We had the World Music Therapy Congress in South Africa, but it was all a webinar. Um, and so we just had that sort of presentation about um, the Louis Armstrong Institute in New York and what they're doing for people with uh, pulmonary issues. And so that works, that, that could be laborious, that could be really heavy on your voice. And so I feel very fortunate to understand vocal health um, before getting into music therapy to understand, okay, if this doesn't feel right, and it hasn't, there's, I, I have not been able to practice the way I've had or in, in my past. And my voice for other reasons, you know, has needed some, some help. Um, but again, I feel like I'm at the advantage where I know what's going on. Go to the ENT, get your, get your life together. You know, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's, it's helpful in a sense. Yeah. So uh, tell the people, myself included, because I, I feel like I only know a little bit. What are you doing right now? What is, what is your, I mean, maybe like outside of COVID, um, like what, what kind of work are you doing now? And are you still in St. Louis? I am. I'm still Love a resident it. of St. Louis. Um, but our goal is to move back to North Carolina eventually because that's where family is right now. Mm -hmm. um, especially when we first of all start to have children, we want to be closer to family. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I'm still in St. Louis. Been here since 2014, since I came here for my master's program. It's crazy to think that. Yes. Um, so, right now, I'm a contracted music therapist. A lot of... Um, what I didn't want is to just be in a job that I didn't want to be in. You feel that way <laughs> when, you know, I, for me, I feel that way after the sacrifices I made to be here and to finally, you know, receive my degree, that mm -hmm. master's thesis ain't no joke. Um, and having to take my certification and going through my thousand hour internship, it was just, something just went off with me around people and being around surrounded by people, you know, who also encouraged this idea of just like, don't do not settle, do not. And it's hard. It's hard when you see other people around you who, you know, are not a hundred percent happy with their job kind mm -hmm. of settling, yeah. but they're making ends meet, you yes. know? And yes. you're just like, <laughs> you know, it's hard, but it's like, I do not want to settle. I really don't. That's, that's not what I want to do. So right before I graduated, I made the connection with a local artist. His name is Ryan Owens, and he is an artist in Ferguson, Missouri. And after the events that um, happened in Ferguson with mm -hmm. Mike Brown, he started a pilot, um, which we use therapeutic songwriting with underserved middle school students, one-on-one um, -on -one sessions with them. And what happened was is that after they... Um, had those sessions with us leading up to the finish um, they ended up recording one song of theirs at a professional recording studio mm -hmm. um, and then they also got to perform that song and processing that experience we saw how successful and how meaningful it was to these students and so he wanted to keep it going so we kept it going and it was a partnership between him and Maryville University which is where I went and so it was music therapy students 
for meeting with junior high students. And so as a result of that pilot, now has birthed this nonprofit with many programs and with um, kind of its own ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So many nonprofits, you know, kind of function with grants and with donors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, not all the way, f- we, we may have started that way, but that's not where we're going. We created our own ecosystem. So because we're working with young artists, they will now have an even more professional opportunity to work as an artist, but those in, in under the name of Life Creative and the money goes into the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have, it's, it's pretty cool to see that. And I'm just like, why don't I see this more often? Um, <laughs> because it was, it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, so my part there is director of programs. So I oversee um, the programs that we have. And I may be transitioning out, but I'm going to get to that point. Um, <laughs> so right now, <laughs> so right now I oversee all of our uh, programs, which is one the Compositions for Life therapeutic songwriting program. But we also have Voices for Life. We also have our Creative Mentor program, which we just started. And we have partner programs um, that don't concern me as much because they function on their own with another organization. We just partner with them. Um, and so that's, that's what I do there. I'm not practicing as much, but I am supervising mm-hmm. um, in that position. My other job is at an alternative school in Winsville, Missouri. I'm laughing because that is in the outskirts. That is in the country, honey. Um, <laughs> somebody might be mad I said that. But anyways, um, <laughs> it, <laughs> it is uh, an alternative school for students who cannot function mainstream. And it could be for many reasons, but it's, Generally, they come into socio-emotional issues, um, either that's truancy or they come into a socioeconomic issue um, and they need just a little bit more assistance. Um, I would say psychologically, either they have a mental health issue or they just are in a poor social situation where they need more support than what the Mm -hmm. school is giving them. So they come to the alternative school and some of them come there all day. Some most of them come there half a day but it's for middle school and high school students. And I'm there um, as a contracted music therapist. Um, I have been there since 2017, 2018. Um, And it's been an awesome experience um, to be there. I've really learned a lot from these students. Yes. um, Because I always see myself as a music therapist, as we have been taught is to collaborate with our clients. We are not there to fix them. We're there to collaborate with them. And I collaborate with my students and I think to them, it's sort of empowering in a sense that you're not trying to fix me. You know, you're not trying to tell me what to do, but you're collaborating with me. You're, you're giving me, you know, some power back, some control back to, to, to show your worth. And that's what I really just try to do. And eventually, you know, some students voice that, you know, I've gotten really meaningful emails, you know, it's been hard to uh, end uh, sessions with students I've been working with for two years. You know, um, I had my, one of my seniors graduate this year and I cried. <laughs> I didn't cry on our Zoom call, but once I got <laughs> off, yeah. I just, I just had tears rolling because she, this person, the student is not the same when they graduated. They are not the same person. And it, what a reward it was to be a part of their journey to help mm-hmm. them transform and to become, be, be able to be comfortable with themselves. Um, it's just been so insightful to be there and be able to collaborate with other health professionals. Um, I work with 
uh, LPC, a licensed professional counselor there. And we consult a lot um, uh, in regards to her students and whom I may be working with, especially, you know, if we run into serious situations where my input or her input may be needed, or if somebody else needs to step in, it's, it's been awesome. I'll just say that. And they appreciate music therapy because unfortunately not everyone appreciates music therapy, kind of look at it as a joke and namely like big names, you know, mm -hmm. big institutions, big places, they kind of want to keep music therapy in a box. And it's like, no, that music therapy is so much more than that. And they just kind of look at it as like, oh, this is all it's supposed to be. So I appreciate the fact that people take me seriously. Mm -hmm. um, they take my profession seriously. And so I'm able to sort of thrive and do well there. And almost anything I ask for, I get. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I say I needed more space, I got a whole room. When I needed a keyboard, they got me an electric piano. When I needed, <laughs> you know, and now I have, it's just like, I'm really grateful because this is not every music therapist situation. And most music therapists who are contracted don't even have their own office. They gave me like this little nook, a little space to have my own office. And I was like, y'all don't even know how grateful I am. They're like, they're like, we know it's in a cave. It's like in a dark corner. There's no windows or anything. I was like, it's I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm really yes. good. So, uh, and I also am starting my own little business. Um, it's called Little Beats. Um, it was initially for me to, so it focuses on building and strengthening relationships between parents and children, as we know, those are the strongest and most influential uh, relationships that a child has in their life. It is the first relationship, honestly. And so that has been my heart, really, because my relationship with my mom is so strong. And like, my mom is just a pillar in my life. And she has made so many sacrifices. I talk about my sacrifices. Okay. All that I went through, but add children in there. Yes. That was my mom. And it was, I saw the challenges she had, but it was amazing to me that she was still able to express her love and build a relationship with her daughters. Cause that was, that was so important. And people ask like, man, your daughters are so good. Like you have, you have good daughters. Like they, they're surprised by that, <laughs> you know? And um, that's probably why, because we knew the love was in the home. That's where it started. And no matter what was going on outside of the house, we knew our mother loved us. And so that's where Little Beats comes from. And first, I wanted to just focus on therapeutic songwriting with parents so they could write a song for the little ones. But then I was like, I want to do more than that. I want this to be multidimensional. I want to do way more than, than just writing a song. And again, I don't really, I have a hard time believing that I'm a good songwriter. So yeah. I just kind of, <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So let's leave a variety for my clients. And so I want to be able to use music therapy interventions to help strengthen relationships between parents and children, because bond is one thing, you know, but a relationship is another. And so I am working on developing little beats. I haven't been able to really, you know, give time and dedicate time to it because I was working two other jobs. Mm -hmm. here, here we go with the three job thing again. But anyways, <laughs> um, so I decided to, now we're in this pandemic and it was just kind of like, well, this is my time. And I was really nervous, like getting back to it, honestly, but I had a friend encourage me to say like, do it, 
And so I just, you know, again, having to get over that hurdle, yes. I, I started putting in the time and I'm loving it. I realized this is what, this is one of the things I'm supposed to do. And I want to, you know, it's funny because I'm having this podcast interview with you right now, but I also want to have a podcast for Little Beats and it's going to be focusing on parent-children relationships and the expert advice and stories of how they were able to build a re- build a relationship with their children. So I really, that is like my passion behind it. And I feel like all of this in full circle is just a thank you to my mom to say like, thank you because you're incredible. Wow. I, that's beautiful. And I would, I think that's a perfect place to end this. However, I want to <laughs> ask, because you, you mentioned something about um, how your job isn't to fix people or students, whatever, but to collaborate with them. And um, do do you feel that there's a space or a way to do that even when you get older in college? Meaning, do you feel like you had that collaboration when you were in undergraduate? And I'll, I'll add to that by saying, going back to school now, where I am more uh, older and I have my ideals and I'm stubborn, very type A in my ideals. But it was, I went into school knowing that this is a collaboration. I was like, I don't need this, I don't need, I know that I don't need you to tell me what to do, let's collaborate and figure it out together. Mm -hmm. But I don't understand, but I don't necessarily know because I don't feel like I had that much control in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I think some would argue that like, you're just trying to learn how to sing. But I feel like w- what you said can kind of be applied to what happens when we go to school for um, music because our teachers are trying to fix us, fix our voices. <laughs> They're trying to fix the way we approach music in terms of theory and fix the way we hear music and all schools, fix the way we, our fingers work on a keyboard and piano, ah. fix the way that we know music history. And, mm. and is, are there spaces or should there have been spaces where we are collaborating or where we feel like we are a part of it? Because at some point you're just getting talked at and you're doing what you have been talked at to do instead of having your own autonomy or th- that sense of collaration. But because I, and I don't know what the answer is to that, but I mm-hmm. don't think the answer is you do this, you do this, you do this, you right. do this. Because I think what we end up with are students who, as soon as you get out of school, the ball's in your court and you've never, and if you've never had the ball in yes. your court, you have no idea what to do. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like there's, like, do you feel like there is a way to collaborate and still be taught? Or do you feel like being taught is its own thing and while you're being taught, you're just being taught and you can't necessarily feel like you are, you can be, have your own say in how you're being taught? So I think being taught in itself is one being taught how to be a musician, but one also being taught how to be I think there's a difference between being taught and being lectured. Mm. And when somebody is teaching you something, there is still space, there's still opportunity 
for them to allow you to be your own individual, but they give you at least the resources for you to learn how to be who you are. Um, being lectured is just basically bullet points telling you, you know, this is what you need to do. But with being taught, there's at least an option on you making the decision on what you want to do. I don't feel like that was my experience um, because I remember actually making a comment to my now colleague saying, I wasn't taught how to create music. I was taught how to sing it. And it was just like a sort of like, damn moment. I was like, I, was I really being taught how to be an artist then? I mean, and a part of it, you know, that's my own internal world, you know, how I was viewing things, how I was just being a people pleaser, how I was just, you know, not trying to stir the pot, how I was trying to do everything right, being a perfectionist. I'm a recovering perfectionist now. Um, <laughs> but that all played a part in how I viewed my world. And so being young mm -hmm. and in my undergrad is kind of hard, but it is possible. Um, I think I would have, I think what, I could have appreciated is more direct um, communication and the opportunity to learn more about myself um, because sometimes I didn't feel like I had the option. You know how some people are just kind of giving you an opinion, but it's so strong that you don't feel like this is a suggestion. It feels like you're telling me what to do. So, <laughs> so, uh -huh. so that's what, that's what it kind of felt like. And uh, like, I understand because I, at the same time, I appreciated those moments sometimes because, yes, it was sometimes my own self-doubt getting in the way. And I needed a little bit of a push to get me through and have that experience. But at the same time, who knows what I could have learned if I made the decision on my own. <laughs> so I think what I do with my clients now, with my students, for not teaching them I'm working with them all the time but I make it clear when I'm giving them instruction versus when I'm asking their opinion or asking mm -hmm. their insight <laughs> thank you um <You're> welcome <laughs> so this was amazing like I knew it would be and and it is so um oh words can't really express it is the work that you're doing is so important and your journey is so important and your experiences are so important. And I appreciate you for sharing. Um, lastly, I will say, what are your, what are your dreams? What do you, what do you, what are you dreaming about these days in terms of art, your artistry and what you're doing in music therapy and life or whatever? Uh, it's so funny people ask about dreams and I just feel like dreams are fluid because they transform mm -hmm. as you transform and so I feel like <laughs> like my dream involves so many different aspects like being a wife and then aspiring to be a mother and creating a home and an environment for my future children like that is a dream that is a dream for me that is one but then also, you know, providing a resource for other parents and children, that is also another dream for me right now. I remember when I had different dreams and those dreams are not dreams. Some of them nightmares. And it's just like, it's just, it's changed. And I'm okay with that. 
Um, but I know what I'm working towards right now and I, I'm so happy. So with, with the dream that I have right now, um, I'm, I'm fully satisfied and just going to move on from there. Yes. So, um, where can people find you, find your, find your work, what you're up to? Ooh. All right. Um, so I'll start with websites first. <laughs> yes. So uh, the work with Life Arts Inc. is now lifecreative.org. Um, that is the ecosystem and the nonprofit. And then my website for Little Beats, which is also going to be under construction very shortly, uh, it's lovelittlebeats.com. And then you can also find me on Insta, um, find Little Beats on Instagram and Facebook on Little Beats LLC on Instagram and Facebook. And then you just find Stephanie Holly on Instagram. I mean, on Facebook, you can find Stephanie Holly on Instagram and it might just be like just Stephanie, but it's the same picture for Facebook and Instagram. So. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And I'm so excited to see where this goes, where it's already going. And, ah, it's, Mm-hmm. it's the it's what we need in the world right now and it's so it's so incredible this is what we need andre thank you for creating this space to have these conversations i mean you've always been a listener i remember like seeing you in the pickle jar or somewhere just listening to somebody like you know hand under chin head nod just <laughs> really <laughs> really and you know listening and you've always been a great listener so i'm glad you just decided to use that skill because this is great this is really great you know how to make people feel valued oh yeah. I appreciate that. Well, you heard it here first, people. <laughs> Stephanie Holly taking over the world. I'm sure I'm literally this is not the first, but I'm, there are lots of people who know that you're taking over the world in the most best ways. Um, Trying. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I love you. I love you too. 